Amen. Thanks, Lee. Well, good morning, everyone. How you guys doing? Good. Well, uh, this morning we're in a series called Having But Not Noting. It's a stewardship series, you know, with the kickoff of the new year. Luke has done a great job of just introducing us to the different things in life that are absolute gifts, things that we don't own, things that we cannot claim, that we uh, developed or conjured up by ourselves, but things that are gifts from God. So we've talked about finances. We've talked about uh, all, there's so many things I can't think of them all right now, Luke. Uh, health. We've talked about marriage. We talk, we, there's just so many things that we've talked about. And uh, this morning, you may be coming in from all over the place. Some of you may be coming in as seasoned Christians. You've been walking with the Lord for a while. Some of you may be coming in, you're investigating this whole Christian thing, checking it out, figuring out, okay, what does it really mean to walk with Jesus Christ? And some of you may be rekindling that flame. Maybe it's something you've been apart from for a while. And so I hope this morning will uh, open up your eyes to some of the, the great gifts that God has given us. One illustration that had a major impact on me upon my conversion in college, when I went off to college, I was not a Christian. I would have called myself what I, what I, like, I like to deem a churchy anity follower. Uh, I went to church every once in a while growing up. I would have claimed to be a Christian because I was American. I ate apple pie. I played basketball, all these different things, but really had no personal relationship uh, with God. And in the process of going off to college and trying to be the next cool thing who partied with the cool guys and achieving all those goals, I realized I had no happiness, no joy. I'd reached the social pinnacle in my circles, and it really left me with nothing. And I would have never told anybody that. Try to cover that up with a facade that I was happy and joyful and fulfilled. But in that process, God, in his grace and mercy, brought a man by my dorm room. I didn't go to a, at the invitation of any religious group to go to their event, but a man came by my dorm room, sat in that stinky 10 by 10 cell they called Clark Hall, and shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shared with me that I was born separated from him. I had imperfections in my life that clearly made me guilty before a holy God, but that Jesus Christ came to the earth, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, could have gone back to heaven, but instead took on the wrath and punishment for me on a cross and was resurrected three days later, and that was the greatest gift anybody could have, and he was offering that gift to me. And so I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior a few months later, and he radically changed my life. And there's one key word there that stuck out to me when I thought about that, and that was Lord and Savior. You know, in the South, in the biblical Bible Belt South, the Savior part's pretty easy to convince people of. I mean, it's amazing how many six- and seven-year-old little kids, when you tell them, hey, you can burn in this place called hell forever, or go to heaven with angels and, and you know, soft, fluffy clouds to sleep on forever, which do you choose, little boy? It's usually pretty easy to convince people Go with the Savior route. It's a lot more comfortable. And so a lot of times people pray and receive Jesus into their heart so they can do that. But the fruit of that is that your life radically changes. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But the fruits of that is the lordship of the Spirit's leading in your life. A sense that he owns everything in your life. That he controls everything in your life. But it's not in a lordship sense of the lords and the serfs of the Middle Ages and Europe that we're talking about here. But this is a heavenly father who is lord over your life. 
and controls your life. And it is a good thing. So one of the illustrations that this guy who led me to Christ began to disciple me in was called the wheel diagram. Has anybody in here ever heard of the wheel diagram? Okay, a few people have. One guy I discipled for a few years, Jake Peterman. Raise your hand, Jake. He's moving here in the end of the spring, him and his wife, Kimmy. And so I was hoping he would at least raise his hand, or I'm just a terrible teacher. Uh, but yeah, the wheel diagram was a, a, an illustration that my disciple leader taught me that he got from this old dead guy named Dawson Troutman, who started this ministry called The Navigators. And the illustration is this. Picture a huge wagon wheel with four spokes. And on that wagon wheel, you have the hub in the center. That's your power source. That's where all your energy comes from that spins that wagon wheel, right? That's the Lord of the wheel. And when you become a Christian, God fills that void that you are trying to fill on your own in a very bad way. And he becomes the hub of your life, the power source of your life. But then he exudes that energy through those four spokes. And those four spokes represent relationship. Those four spokes represent him playing out the relationship he has with you on a vertical and a horizontal level through those spokes on that wheel. The vertical is this. One, he communicates to us through prayer. Talking through his word. Vertical. Prayer in God's word. How many of you have a relationship where there's no communication? Yeah, a lot of us. We have relationships, we would call them, where there's bad communication, no communication, and we wouldn't really actually, if we define those deep down, are not relationships. It might be people we coexist with or we're related to by blood, so we have to interact every once in a while, but not really a relationship where there's communication. That's what the Lord, by his grace, does for us. After we are born into his kingdom, he gives us a source of communication with him through prayer, vertically, through his word, vertically. But then also he plays this out through a horizontal plane. One you'll hear about a lot in this church is the horizontal plane, the horizontal spoke of evangelism and witnessing to others. Trying to tell others about the good news that happened to you, this good news of Jesus Christ, and, to, and bringing them in to the kingdom of God and telling them more about how they can have a personal relationship with you. And so it's your interaction with those who do not know Jesus Christ. But then there's also the spoke, and that's where we're going to camp out today. It is the spoke of fellowship. Biblical relationships with other people in this family we call Christianity. In this kingdom we call the kingdom of God. And it's a relationship that we do not own in and of ourselves. It's one that the Lord owns, the great heavenly father, and we are his children. And we have to steward these relationships as we interact and communicate. And in doing so, we enjoy the benefits of going deeper and deeper with our heavenly father through other children of his. And so many people don't know this about me as we get into this sermon. Many people don't know this about me, but I was born in the great state of California. We have any other people born in California here? There's one I know. Any other, anybody lived in California by chance? Okay, a few people here. Well, I was born in San Diego County, just north of San Diego, a little town called Oceanside, uh, right on the beach. And so I've been cursed with being a fan of the San Diego Chargers and the San Diego Padres. I mean, can you have two worst teams in all professional sports. But yes, I love both of them. I'm going to not be a bandwagon guy. And, uh, but, uh, you know, before I was born, my parents, right after they got married, my dad went and finished up his college degree and got his master's at a, at a school in Northern California called Chico State. 
Now, most people have never even heard of Chico State. Where is that? That sounds like something out of a book or whatever it is. And uh, it's a school in Northern California, not far from Sacramento, San Diego, or San Francisco area. And while my dad was up there, he would always show me pictures of him and my mom doing different things on the weekend there in Chico. Chico was near the Sequoia National Forest. The Sequoia National Forest has those huge redwood trees, right? Like those things that you can like drive a Mack truck through. They're so huge. They go as high as skyscrapers or as wide as a, a couple football fields, it seems like, when you look at the pictures. Maybe not that big, but they're just enormous. And uh, you get a little picture of a seven-foot guy standing in front of it, and he looks like an ant just crawling up a little maple tree or something like that. They're so huge. They grow so tall. They grow for so long. But the interesting fact about those trees is this. Usually, dendrologists would tell you, hey, a tree usually has a root system that reflects the height of the tree. But it's not true with the redwoods. The redwoods are these huge towering trees with a small root system. It doesn't go very deep. And when physicists would look at that, they would tell you, hey, because of the wind and the size of the tree and how top-heavy they are, those things should just fall right over as soon as one of those California winds blows through in a storm. They should just plumble right over. But yet we have whole forests full of these redwood trees. How do they stay up with this small root system? And here's how. What they do is those roots, as they dig down, they not only go down, they go to the left and right. And they begin to intertwine with each other. And as they intertwine, they latch on and even engraft into each other's root system. And what you have is a vast forest of these towering trees that are just majestic, who are only standing because of each other. And so this morning, as we talk about this thing called biblical fellowship, I would ask you, as righteous mighty oaks, as sons and daughters of God, is your root system intertwined with those other mighty trees around you, with those other saints around you, with those other believers around you? Because if not, the Lord Jesus says, hey, the winds and the rains, they will come. And we must stand together, not alone. In fact, that's how the Lord has set it up. He says, yes, he is the vine. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If any man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. True, that's the ultimate power source. But yet, in and of that, the Lord has ordained in his power and his authority and his sovereignty to say, and one of my means of grace to make you stand and rely on me is to rely on each other. In fact, Jesus Christ summarized all the law in this. Love the Lord your God, the first root system, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Those horizontal relationships are one of his means of grace to grow you closer to him. And so we must look at the importance of that as something that we should steward in our lives. Uh, shortly after I became a Christian, a few things happened to me. One, I was truly regenerated. I was truly born again. I mean, my life just radically changed all the, my old Baptist preacher back in Cookville, Tennessee used to say this, my wanter changed what it wanted inside. I think, I think I can still get away with that in East Tennessee. My wanter changed what it wanted. 
Like my inner thoughts and desires, it's not like, okay, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to grit my teeth and be holy and listen to cheesy radio Christian stations with fish in the name and all this kind of stuff and do and I'm just going to be a Christian. No, that's not what happened. What happened was a radical change happened. And I started to desire things I used to never desire. I used to hate things I used to live for on the weekends. And one of those things was my relationships with other Christians. I remember Christian guys coming down the hall, invite me to Bible studies and things like that. And it was just like, close the door, act like we're asleep, hide the beer bottle. You know, it's just like a void. But then all of a sudden, I wanted to be around them. And there's a few things that happened, a few relationships that happened. One was a guy down the hall named Jeff Sloan. He's the guy I played basketball with all through the fall semester. We would go, we would talk about how we're going to take some guys down. We'd talk about how we're going to have so much fun on the weekend. And he came in a few months before me and told me about his a new life, his new change of finding Jesus and telling me all about these things and, you know, made sure to correct me every time I dropped a cuss word in front of him. And all. He just, his life radically changed. And then I became a Christian. And it was almost like I didn't know who to run to with my issues because we were the, I was all of a sudden the weird guy on the floor inviting people to the Bible studies just like those guys were. And Jeff came alongside me. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Jeff came alongside me and just sharpened me became a close friend, became somebody I could rely on whenever I was asking tough questions about the next stage of growth in this whole Christian journey. But then there were four or five other guys throughout the campus who were coming to Christ, led, led to Christ by this same man named David Burns. And so he started pulling us all together in Bible studies, and we started exchanging our stories and exchanging our trials, exchanging our temptations, exchanging all the the things about the Christian life, our root system started to grow together and we created what we called a discipleship group. And in that discipleship group, every week we would get together for two hours and just study God's word, share problems. When one of, us, one of the guys would uh, go down a road that was clearly not going to be healthy in his relationship, one of the other guys would call him out and say, hey man, I want to challenge you on that. Is that is that really going to push you towards Christ? And the other guy would bristle up usually because we were all a bunch of 19, 20-year-old dudes and we'd work it out, but then we'd come back and be like, man, hey, thanks for being brave enough to, to call me out on that. Man, you really sharpened me. Or, or, man, you came alongside me when I was just down, I was discouraged. My parents were calling me a freakazoid for all of a sudden doing this whole Christian thing and you came alongside me and said, hey, it's going to happen. People are going to say you're an alien and a stranger in this world. Hey, listen to this verse. And you, you encouraged me. Two weeks ago, we had a marriage retreat with this same group of guys 20 years later. Cindy and I went up to a little cabin in the, in the middle of the woods in Indiana where all of us came together and had a weekend just reminiscing all these things and even hearing what had happened 20 years later through our children and through disciples and people we had led to Christ and kind of reproduce this process spiritually with. And it was some of the sweetest fellowship I've had in a long time. But it's almost like we just picked up where we left off, even though I hadn't seen some of these people face-to-face in 10 years. And it was because there was a sense of this biblical fellowship. And when I say that word, biblical fellowship, I think that's what we have to clearly define this by. You know, when you hear that word fellowship, especially here in Tennessee, there's some different things that come to mind. Some of you, when I say, what is fellowship, you automatically think of a bunch of crockpots up against the wall and really old, antiquated desserts that some grandmas make that they think are still good. And you come together and you eat and talk about, you know, how the sermon was after church or whatever. 
And that's what you think of when you think of fellowship. As others of you uh, may be thinking of the old cliche, uh, what is fellowship, two men in a ship? Trying to get somewhere. If one doesn't row, then you just go in circles. And we need each other. I, I don't know where you're coming in and what fellowship is, but we have to look at what it is biblically. First John 1, 3, I think, is a great definition of what a biblical fellowship looks like. It says this, 1 John 1, 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what we're talking about here when we talk about fellowship, fellowship's just a really a, a, the Greek word meaning having something in common that you're growing towards. So my son, one of his favorite movies is The Fellowship of the Rings. They have a central thing that they have fellowship around, that centralized thing, the rings, right? Well, that's exactly what biblical fellowship is. And you see that in 1 John. Our fellowship that we have is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not just getting together. We're not just talking about friendships where we can talk about what's Peyton going to do after he retires. It's not just interests that we all have in common. It's not just saying, hey, we have very, very similar backgrounds, and man, we can just, it's almost like we would have hung out in high school cruising downtown and all those things. That's not necessarily what fellowship is. It can be some of those things, but it's rooted down deep in having that only one thing in common, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it ebbs and flows and networks and goes through our veins of our lives and intertwines who we are. And that's where our fellowship is. It makes me think of a story of true biblical fellowship in action. I've been in college ministry now for about 20 years as a student and staff. And when you're in college ministry, you have multiple affinity groups on campus that you're sharing the gospel with. You have the football guys, and you have the, the chemistry majors, you have the international students, and you have the black student council, and you have the, you know, just a diverse group. It's, it's a united diversity, university, right, on the college campus. And so every once in a while, there are pictures that happen that make me realize that's what biblical fellowship is. It's just having that one thing in common. Sometimes it's just crystal clear. And I can remember Kyle Mullaney coming to Christ. Kyle Mullaney was a guy who would walk around like this, and if he saw you across the, the campus, no matter where, who you were with or what you're doing, he would just stop. Mason! Hey! It's Kyle! Hey! And he'd walk up in his weird walk, and he'd talk to you, you know, and he'd usually have something crusting on his face or something like that, or hair not combed. He'd have something going on to where you're just like, okay, Jesus loves me, this I know, and this guy. I'm going to fight it out here. Hey, how you doing, Kyle? We, we all have Kyles in our life. Some, I may be your Kyle for your life. I don't know. But that was Kyle. But Kyle was, led, he was, he was an, actually an atheist, arguing all the time in a real annoying way with Christians when he was first coming around. He was also very intelligent, which is why I think he didn't care what his hair looked like. And so Kyle came to Christ. One of his fellow dorm mates down the hall was involved in our ministry and led him to Christ. And so he starts coming around. He transitions all this stuff to, to reading the Bible and memorizing Scripture and just by the truckloads. But guess what? He was still annoying Kyle. He was just, love Jesus now. So Kyle started coming to our prayer meetings. Now, simultaneously, another guy came to Christ. His name was Stuart Childress. 
Stewart was first-team All-State quarterback. His team won the football state championship and went to the Final Four in the basketball state championship, and it was because of him. So he was at Murray State to be the new starting quarterback. I was the chaplain on the team, so I got to jump in his life, share with him. He came to Christ. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. He realized, hey, I've reached the pinnacle of the cool athletic world, and it's empty. I'm ready to listen to you now because I had developed that relationship. I had shared some of this, this gospel message with him, came to faith in Christ. He starts coming to that prayer meeting. And I come in one night to that prayer meeting, Sunday night at 9 o'clock on campus. That's early still on the college campus. And I walk in and I look over in the corner and there's the, the new starting quarterback who just came to Christ. You know, if you're a campus minister, it's like, you know, you, Jesus is your badge, but if you lead a starting quarterback to Christ, it's like you're also going to, not supposed to, but you're going to wear that badge a little bit also. So I walk in and there's Stuart over in the corner. And who's he talking to? Kyle! Him and Kyle are over in the corner just, you know, jawing it up, going back and forth, talking. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to leave, never come back around again. There was the starting quarterback who I thought was going to change everything and make us the coolest ministry on campus. Now, old Kyle's going to run him off, talking to him a mile a minute about Republican politics and all these kind of different things. And so after the prayer meeting, I kind of forget about it. We're walking back towards the sports dorm there at Murray where Stuart lives, and we were talking. And he's like, man, Mace, tonight was awesome. I'm thinking, you know, he probably liked my prayer direction I gave, you know, good verse I read boldly to the crowd. He's like, man, that Kyle dude told me about his testimony. Man, we both came to Christ about the same time. He, he's memorizing scripture, man. He's like, just taking it in. He's telling me all these things. He really showed, he, he helped me grow closer to Jesus tonight, man. And I just stopped right in my tracks. I was like, man, Stuart, you just experienced biblical fellowship tonight. And I was just so ashamed <laughs> in the moment. I got over it, you know what I mean? Because I remembered this is what it's all, this is what we signed up for. To see pictures of grace and miracles like that. This nerdy guy and this cool guy come together saying, man, we, we can unite. We can encourage each other. Why? Because of that one thing. That one united thing, that relationship we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That true biblical fellowship. You know, in the Christian life, there's no such thing as a maverick Christian. Maverick. Now, for those of you here, we have a few Texans in the room, so they can explain more about this later and all the cowboy ways. Uh, but a maverick is a bull or a horse and a herd of animals as they're driving these animals through, uh, you know, through Texas to go up to Kansas City to sell them at market or whatever they're doing. As they're going on this drive, it's a bull or a horse that goes off on his own and gets away from the herd. He goes off and he does his own thing. He goes off and says, I'm not going to follow the pack because I'm the leader. I'm going to do my thing my way. Or they get distracted with something and they say, I have my, you know, my eyes zeroed in on this patch of grass over here and the herd's going that way, but I've already caught eye of that green grass over there. I'm going that way. And what those cowboys would call that would be a maverick. They would have to say, hey, Bubba, go take the herd. I got to go get the maverick. And so they get on and they go and lasso them up and bring them back in. Because here's why that was so important. One, it's worth money. The more horses and cows you have, the more money you get. But two, how long would that cow or horse last? 
out on his own, without the herd, without the shepherd. You see, we were made for biblical fellowship. I mean, even Adam, in the perfect place, heaven on earth, right, in the Garden of Eden, no sin was not completed until he had that helpmate. From the beginning, you have a sense of we were created to need each other. There are no maverick Christians. Are you a maverick? I know I am at times. I had those snapshots of wanting to be that maverick who says, I'm just going to do it my way. It's just me and Jesus. You know, we, that's all I need. And before I know it, I've zeroed in so much on that other greener grass that I've really disconnected myself from where the nutrition is, from where the, the shepherding is, from where the, the fruitfulness is. There are no maverick Christians. So if that's what fellowship is, and not from a biblical standpoint, we need to look at kind of the purpose of fellowship. And I want to go to a verse that I memorized early on in my Christian walk that has really been the one I come back to many, many times when I think about what's, the, what's that true purpose behind this fellowship? What is it about having that union in Christ together with other people that really uh, is what it's meant for for the long haul? It's Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a few words there that I want to make observations about in that passage. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the beginning there that we need to consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us consider Now, that word consider just means think carefully. What's the ESV say? Some of you guys have the ESV version out there? Does it say consider also? What's it say? Nobody uses the ESV here. Okay, say consider also? Okay. Yeah, let us consider. Consider just means to think about intently. Now, there's three things that I don't need reminding of to think about and consider in my life. Three, Three people, really. One is me. The second is myself, and the third is I. I. I just do a really good job. I actually do take time to consider how I can move my life forward on a, reg- on a daily, on a moment-by-moment basis. I do a really good job of considering those three people's needs. And I think that's why the writer of Hebrews comes here and says, okay, as you've come into this union with Christ, as you begin to walk with him, and you want to see this work out and enrich it and go even deeper, here's one thing you can do to develop that relationship. Consider other people in this body. Take some actual time where you stop and you push pause on me, myself, and I. And when I'm pointing to you guys out here, I've got the whole three fingers back at myself thing going on, right? Take that time to consider what can I do to push others towards Jesus more this week? What can I do to give of myself that might come alongside somebody who's hurting and maybe I'm the one who can come in and, and 
give them a little bit of Christ, a little bit of the love of Christ that they need to hear. Maybe it's somebody who needs that, that, that jerk back into the herd, and he's kind of going down this maverick trail, and it's very clear to me, and instead of going and talking about three and four and five different people about how this guy's going down the trail, maybe I can do the awkward, uncomfortable thing and go and say, hey, man, I, I could be wrong, but I think you're heading down this maverick trail. And the end of it leads to death. Let us consider. It really challenges me, that, this, that simple word. I honestly, if I'm being really honest, I, I wonder how many times in the last few months I've really stopped and said, man, I'm just going to sit and think about those people around me and how to help move them forward in that relationship. Now, the thing is, it's not like I'm sitting around thinking about how can I make more dollar bills for myself or get bigger houses, cars, boats, or whatever it is. I might be thinking about really good things like how to grow the ministry, how to reach more lost people, how to better educate my children, how to... It may be very moral, amoral things that I'm thinking about, but it's got to be something there if that writer says, let us consider others, how we may spur them on. Are we taking that pause? Another thing it says there is that we're to spur them on towards love and good deeds. Now, again, we're in a day and age where having confrontational conversations and relationships is almost taboo. The only confrontations you have are with people who are your enemies. But how many guys grew up with brothers and sisters? Anybody in here? Yeah, okay. Any conflict in those relationships growing up? Yeah, all the, yeah. No problems there. Like if my brother came out and he had some like stupid flower shirt on and, with jams that were like striped and stuff and his knee tops folded down and stuff, you know what I mean? I, was, I would tell him, hey, you look stupid. And I love you. That's why I'm telling you that. And I don't want you to go to Oakdale Elementary looking like that. One, maybe because I don't want people to know you're my brother and it'll make me look bad. But two, I really care about you and I don't want you to be cool. I'm going to confront you on this issue. I'm going to dig the spur. You know what a spur is? You know, again, these Texas guys can explain it to you later. They even name all their sports teams after all these things. Mavericks, Spurs. But the spur... You know, these cowboys would, you know, get on these horses, and on their boots, they would have these metal things. And if Clint was here, he could tell you more about it, too, the good Texan doctor. And they have these metal things that go around their boot, and on the end of the boot, there's this little feather duster, this really light feather duster that they tickle the horse with and encourage it and give it a little laugh. No. That's not what a spur is. You know what a spur is? It's like these little circular saws. <laughs> when I look at them, I always think of like, a, you know, some lumberjack going through and just taking it through. Little, tiny little blades almost on the end of the, these metal tips on these boots, and they literally dig the spurs in to the horse's flesh. And it gets the horse's attention for obvious reasons. But what it does, it gets that horse moving in that right direction that the cowboy wants to take it. It gets it moving in a forward direction, not in reverse, and not wayward on its own. That's what we're called to do in our biblical relationships. To spur one another on. 
to jump in and get in the nitty-gritty to where it's dirty and messy and takes time and it's hard and push each other closer to the Father. And not only are we to give the spurrings, but if we're truly in the middle of that biblical fellowship, we're also to receive. And honestly, that might be the toughest pill to swallow of the whole biblical fellowship. The fact that I've told Luke and Kevin, hey, you guys have full meddling rights. If you see it, dig the spurs down. And that goes against everything in my personal American, let's make America great again, inner, to give rights to this guy over here with a shaved head to say, hey, man, I could be wrong, but there's something I see in your life. And I want to kind of dig the spur in a little bit on that area. But as I look back over 20 years of walking with the Lord, he has used other men and women in my life, my wife, my supervisors, my disciples, my children, to dig spurs in and bring things up out of me and uh, reveal to me blind spots that were totally impeding on my interaction with the Lord and ultimately impeding on my joy in him. Do you have those relationships? Do you have that brother who's spurring you on, that sister who you say, I'm, I need to spur them on towards love and good deeds? The next thing that goes on there, it says, do not give up meeting together. So not only do you see the need for it and have those people in your life, but there's a consistency. You know, on the, on the other plane of relationships is the evangelism relationship. And as I'm training young campus ministers to go out and have an impact on the campus, one of the biggest, probably the biggest thing that we do that we try to make it sure we don't let fall through the cracks is just consistency in relationships. Keep showing up. If you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, if you just keep bringing that to the same place over and over again, regardless of how they're responding, and you keep thinking of ways of how to keep showing up and how to get that message out, fruit is going to eventually come. And that's pretty easy to convince people of when you're talking about evangelism and missions. But are we doing that in our relationships within the body of Christ? Is there a consistency? Is there a routine? Is there rhythms in our lives where these relationships, man, this is going to happen? And the growth is small, but over time, small growth becomes big growth. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us here. Don't give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing. Encouraging one another. This is really fascinating, but I've yet to meet the over-encouraged man or woman. Anybody in here this morning is just over-encouraged? You just... If one more person tells me something good about me, I'm going to punch them in the face. No. I've just, I've yet to meet the person in the body of Christ or in general who is over-encouraged. Are you giving? Are you receiving encouragement? Are you having and not owning biblical relationships within the body? 
So to close, just in some application of how can we take these observations, take these different perspectives from God's Word and realities of fellowship, how can we take some of these things and put boots on the ground, rubber hit the road? I think the first and foremost place that the Lord desires to achieve biblical fellowship in your life is through the local church. A local body of believers that you say, I'm going to go and make a committed covenant with to join in and say, I'm not going to give up meeting together somewhere in the habit of doing, but I'm going to consistently show up, steward this relationship that the Lord died on a cross for and rose again three days later, that he gave me to put as fuel on the fire. Bill Bright says this, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, one of my heroes of the faith, said this to his new disciples as they would come around and go through these different illustrations. He would say, men, women, you're like a new coal. You are just a, a wet, cold piece of coal that's now been lit afire forever, eternally, never to go out. And the Lord is faithful. He will not let it go. But the ember can be stoked. Even though it'll never go out and you'll never lose that salvation fire, it can go low. And there's no better place than to ignite and bring that fire to a blaze and with other coals coming together. What a picture of the church. Again, we're going out. We're going to be on mission. You're going to get tired. It's just the one string guitar here that we're going to talk about and play all the time. Mission, mission, mission. Yes. But then coming back together to refuel. Going through mission as a community and doing it as embers who become a great and mighty flame. The local church is where it starts. Joining a local church. Another thing from the more macro version of the local church is getting in a small group. You might say, Mason, I don't have anything in common with that group. Yes, you do. If the one thing that matters is there, Jesus Christ. Remember, Stuart and Kyle? Let's not play the game. I don't have anything in common with this group of people. Because the Lord loves to stack the deck against himself. He loves it when he takes people who don't have anything in common and as they say, you know what, Lord, just let me submit my relationships to you. I'm going to commit to show up with these small groups consistently. And he does something there supernatural. And all of a sudden people start growing and all of a sudden they, do, they start to find commonalities out, even outside of the one essential one. Are you in that small group? I know for me it's a challenge. Even the one I'm in is great, but my first instinct getting, man, I can't wait to get to small groups sometimes. Boil it down a little more, and this will be my last one. Just that one or two-person accountability group. Same-sex accountability group where you come together and you kind of really bring out the skeletons in the closet. We call them DNA groups here at Legacy. But really, the whole point of it is just a group of people you come with, and there's not just yes men all around you. There's not just yes women all around you. But there's a sense of, okay, we can't do this alone. I need a couple fellows who are going to just dig in. You know, if, if it's really about the heart, I need a couple guys who get the scalpels. If it's really about the heart, I need a couple ladies who I give the scalpel over to and say, all right. But the fruit that I've seen from these kind of relationships, the small group, the accountability group, the local church, has literally changed my life. 
And I'm so glad that the Lord has given us this stewardship to have, but not own. We've got to do it his way. It can't be on our terms. But that's what grace is all about. None of us are going to gravitate towards all these things. But the Spirit of God living in us through his grace and grace alone is going to push us towards it. And when we taste and see that the Lord is good, we'll return over and over again to that biblical fellowship. So this week, think about how you can put that into practice. Let me pray for you guys, and we'll worship the Lord together. Father God, we thank you that we are not left on an island alone. We thank you that you, even you in community with yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, show us that community is a means of grace. And we have a chance to steward that relationship and have it. But Lord, you own it. Help us to walk into relationships and walk through this life together. In your name, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me.